All right, um, we are going to be moving at a pretty good clip. So um, let's just pray. Go ahead and jump in. Um, I'm the only one laughing there. I understand that. Uh, But let's pray together. God, thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its beauty. Thank you for its simplicity. Thank you that you have chosen to be a God who speaks. And you've chosen to give us ears to hear. And so I pray that everyone who does have ears to hear would listen. That your spirit would move and that you would continue to transform us into your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, really quickly, before we move on, we've been in Genesis now for about a month, um, and I want to maybe recap a little bit how we've been doing things um, so that this sermon falls uh, hopefully into its proper place and context. Uh, the, the series title is Gospel Origins, uh, and really the heart behind that, if it's not terribly obvious, is that... Um, As a church, we want to love and cherish and proclaim the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ, uh, him crucified, resurrected, him as Lord and King of all people. Uh, And we believe that the Bible uh, proclaims the gospel in every page, the gospel being good news, um, that God uh, is there, he loves you, uh, he has made a way in spite of your sin to have um, communion with him, uh, and so we believe that. And and in the past, we've we've talked about the gospel, and we looked through the book of Romans, and, and we kind of gave this definition of the gospel, um, uh, just quickly as the being that the just and loving God of the universe looked down on hopelessly sinful people, and took pity, had mercy, sent His Son Jesus to live the life that we can't live to die the death that we deserve so that all people who respond to him in faith and repentance can have life now and forever. Um, We talked about that through Romans. And as gospel transforms people, it creates community. And so naturally, we talked about the church and we looked through Acts and we looked through the 29th chapter, um, which there's only 28 chapters in Acts. So we, we basically had an extended study on what is the church and what does it mean for us, Grace Community Church, to be a local church. Uh, and we looked at essentially what it is to be the, the ones, the community who carries the gospel. Uh, And so it became natural and exciting to progress into this, that the gospel is in all of Scripture. It's not confined to four books. It's not confined to a formulaic uh, sermon or statement or, or event where people who aren't Christians hear and are changed. The gospel is, is bigger than that. Uh, It's for unbelievers, but it's for believers. It's in those four books that tell the story of Jesus' life, but all of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. That's gospel. And all of the New Testament is pointing back towards Jesus. That's gospel. We believe the gospel. We love the gospel. We want to preach it week in and week out. 
If it were anything else, we'd say, we want to preach it till you get sick of it. But the glory of the gospel is the more you preach it, the more beautiful it becomes to you, and you do not get sick of it. We are not sick of it. We are so happy every morning to preach the gospel to you. And so we found ourselves in Genesis looking at the gospel. And if we're going to look at the gospel, we have to remember that it's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about God. And so we've looked at God through Genesis. Uh, in chapter 1, we talked about a, few, a couple things. We, we talked about a God who is there. We talked about a God who, who is king and, and creates. And we talked about a God who's our father. Uh, but that God who is there and who is king and who creates and his father also enters into his world, into creation, and relates to his people through something called covenant. He's a covenant God. Another way of saying that is what we talked about last week, that our God writes his own agreements. He can. He's like that. And so God covenants with his people. And look, we could spend, I think, probably two or three good years just unpacking the word covenant in about, well, two or three good years. So like, you know, uh, I'm not good with math, like 7,000 sermons. Um, on what covenant is, right? And, and, and we would never exhaust the depths and the riches of our covenant God. We don't have time to do that this morning. And so I want to say this, that well, there, there's, there's opportunity for you to unpack a little bit more deeply covenant, which is one of the three most important strings that run through the storyline that is Scripture. There's kingdom, there's temple, there's covenant. All of these three things find their root in the beginning. All of them find their fulfillment in Jesus, and we'll see the beauty of it when Jesus' work is ultimately complete and he returns. And we don't have time to talk about that. Um, but in home group, you will talk about it. So if you're a part of a home group, go. Prioritize it. Be there. If you're not a part of a home group, this is a great opportunity to fellowship with believers, to be edified in your faith, and to dig deeper into the Word. There's just so much that we cannot, we sim- it's, it's not feasible to try and do on Sunday. There's so much that's not even appropriate from a pulpit context that you can talk about in home groups. So if you're not a part of a home group, I really encourage you to, to join one. And, and if you're new to the church and you're trying to figure out what church is like, let me also say go to a home group. Because if you want to know what the heart and the life and the, the breath of Grace Community Church is, you see it in its truest form in home group. And so before you decide, hey, I want to join or I want to move on somewhere else, let me encourage you to, to go to home group. Um, but you'll get the chance to talk about covenant. Um, and so all of those things are, are what we've talked about. And so now we find ourselves here in the second chapter of Genesis, right? We've been in it for five weeks, and we're in chapter two. Um, we're going to keep moving along. This, this is foundational stuff, though. And so it's exciting to preach. It's exciting to teach, and it's important for us to grasp. And, and so let's look at our text now that we've, again, set it in place, in its place, Um, And let's stand together and read and see what God has to teach us from his scriptures. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 uh, through the end. So through 25. 
Um, and if you would, just, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn there. If not, it's on the screen. But if not, remember, bring your Bibles. Um, it's, it's a good thing to have. Um, so turn to or scroll to or push whatever button you need to do to get to Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he, could call, he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave name to all livestock, uh, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he, was, while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The title of the sermon, as you see, uh, is The God Who Marries. Um, but let me just say this. This is not a how-to sermon on marriage. Um, there's not going to be like seven points for uh, happy marriage. Um, we, there, there are a lot of things that we could talk about, right? Marriage could be its own eight or 12-year series. Um, and we, we're just not going to talk about that. But instead, um, what I want to do is give you a big picture of marriage. And, and here's what I believe. And, and it's, it's like what Brad talked about in, in, in the points uh, and the reasons that we preach, the approaches and the hopeful goals of preaching. Um, the point is that, or, or my belief strongly, is that uh, while I can give you pointers, and you can apply those pointers, and they may, in fact, um, work. Uh, I think what will become more valuable for all of us is if instead we look at the truth of what God is doing, we look at that big picture of what God is doing, we fall in love with the sovereign God who plans things perfectly. We love his scripture. We begin to see it and cherish it and read it and apply it for ourselves. And then we see our hearts changed. That's not to say that there are a few things that I'm going to point out and say, hey, apply this here. But it is to say that I, I, we're not here to give you a new law. We're here to present to you the gospel. 
And so we want to do that through this text. And so I just want to be clear, like this is very big picture stuff. Uh, And hopefully it'll narrow in some at the end. Um, Hopefully the application will be somewhat self-evident, but I I don't know that that's ever the case, which means you'll have a good time uh, and the ability to flesh out application in home groups. Um, So uh, again, that's another, probably my last for the night or morning, uh, used to youth, um, plug for home groups. So anyway, uh, so this, this sermon about marriage is, is, is about God <clears throat> and what he's doing in marriage. And so we're just going to look at four things. We're going to look at uh, the setting for marriage, the reason for marriage, the beauty of marriage, and the promise of marriage. Um, and when we see what marriage is here in the text and here in Scripture, I think we'll come to love and appreciate Jesus more. Um, so let's look at that first thing, uh, the setting for marriage. And even before I do that, let me just say that if you are looking for great marriage advice, um, I would recommend to you Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage. Um, it is very thorough. It's very good. It's not just for married couples. If you're single, uh, I especially recommend that you, maybe not especially, but um, do not look at it and say, oh, it's a marriage book. It's not for me. Read it. Read it before you start thinking about marriage even. Um, It's a great book. It's a great book. It's Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage. Anyway, let's look at the setting of marriage. And this is the setting that we find our text in. uh, Because uh, God doesn't do this in Genesis 1. God doesn't tell Moses to explain this in Genesis 1. It finds its context in Scripture on purpose. And so there's some things going on. There's some things happening around this first marriage. And so the first thing that I want you guys to know about the setting is that its setting is a kingdom. All right? So when we talked about Uh, God and and creation in Genesis chapter 1, what we saw was God who was king of the universe. And this king of the universe speaks. Uh, Psalm 148 says it like this. He gives a decree and it won't pass away. And he makes this royal decree in the beginning and he sets the stars in their place and he sets the boundaries of the earth and he creates people, all things that are created, God creates by his royal decree. He's a king. He builds a kingdom. And we see this kingdom highlighted even in the fact that God then makes for himself children. What kings do is they rule and then they have dynasty. They pass on their rule. And so God makes for himself people after his own image. You remember we talked about this. Humanity is in the image of God where his children, he's our father, and he gives us his role, dominion over the earth. Let them have dominion and rule. He's creating for himself a kingdom. And in God's kingdom, in the beginning, all things are good. They're in order the way he wants them to be. He rules without question. God is our king, and the earth, the universe, the cosmos is his kingdom. And so God has made for himself a kingdom, and that, that's the overarching setting. If you remember that name that God gives for himself is Elohim. And Elohim is a general name for God. He's God of everything. He's king of the universe. 
right? That sounds so big. When we lived in Florida, uh, on occasion, we would drive to, uh, we lived in Orlando. I was going to seminary there. On occasion, we'd go to like downtown Disney or Universal. And on on I-4, we used to laugh all the time about this. We'd pass by this church and the name of the church, I think it's a church, I'm not sure. But the name of the church was Mary Queen of the Universe. And we'd be like, that's huge. Like, Mary Queen of the Universe. It seems so crazy, but <laughs> Queen of the, it just sounds like a sci-fi movie, right? Um, but, but here's the thing is, our God is King of the Universe. He is. And so they got the scope right, but the, the figure they were off on. It's God. He's the king of the universe. He creates for himself a kingdom. That's the major context that we find all of this, this taking place in. Uh, but then we go to chapter 2, and we didn't get to unpack this as much last week or this week as, as we could. But you'll unpack it in home groups. So, sorry about lying before. Um, but the setting is also a temple. That's what Genesis 2 is talking about, specifically starting in verse 4. God's no longer referred to as Elohim alone. He's Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is Lord. That's a covenant name that God has with his covenant people. He won't reveal it to his covenant people until Moses, but that's the name he uses with his covenant people. And In Genesis chapter 2, we see that God is making an even more specific place where he dwells with his people. The place where God dwells with his people is the temple. Is a temple. And look, again, we can't go into all of it, but if you look at the description of the Garden of Eden that we looked at last week, and you look at the description of both the tabernacle and the temple, you're going to be amazed at the continuity. If you hadn't thought about it before, you were going to be struck by the fact that God crafts his temple, tells Solomon to make his temple so that it feels and looks like a garden, and not just any garden, the garden. It's a temple. God places man in the temple garden of Eden and gives him a task. We looked at that in verse 15. That's why I had you read it, or that's why we read it again this week. God tells Adam to work it and keep it. That phrase together, work it and keep it, that term as it is, happens only two other times in the Old Testament. And that's when he's talking about the role of the priest at the tabernacle and the role of the priest at the temple. Look, Adam, humanity, was given priestly responsibility. Well, where do priests work? And, and, and where are priests protecting and keeping that which God has given them? The temple. We have to understand this context. We have to see this setting that we're in right here in Genesis chapter 2 to understand the beauty of what's happening, to understand exactly what marriage is. And so marriage finds its setting in a kingdom temple or a temple kingdom. The next thing I want to, to look at is the reason for marriage. 
All right. And so we've got this temple kingdom where God's king priests or priestly kings. First um, Peter uh, 2 9 describes, uh, says it like this about us who are in Christ. Um, that we're a royal priesthood. So this royal priesthood that God creates um, is, found, is here in the garden. And, and God looks at Adam and he says this in verse 18. It is not good that the man should be alone. All right, And this should be striking because for the first time, in one and a half chapters, for the first time in Scripture, something is not good. Genesis chapter 1, everything is done, and it's good. It's all done, day six, it's very good. And we're reading through the story, and everything is beautiful and right, and then all of a sudden, here in verse uh, 15, or in verse 16, God says, look, it's not Good that man should be alone. And so God recognizes that there is something deficient about a person on their own. There's something wrong about a person on their own. Look, part of that is set in the fact that we are made in the image of God. And if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 26, God says, let us make man in our own image. And yes, that's a familial uh, thing. That's a, he's our father, but also there are ways that we mirror God's qualities. We mirror uh, the things that God is about. We are Uh, image bearers of God, and he says, let us make man in our own image. God is us. He's triune. There's a community that's existed before creation. Uh, The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have existed in community before God even says the first, let there be. And then God makes us like him, and so part of that is that we are created to be in community as God is eternally in community. And so it's not good for us to be alone. God recognizes that. And so God crafts a plan. And so the first reason that God creates marriage is is a communal reason, so that man will not be alone. And let me just go off on on this uh, tangent for just a second, or let me make this aside. Um, I find it quite interesting that the Lord God sees that it's not good for man to be alone, crafts a plan to make for Adam a helper fit for him, and then says to Adam, uh, name the animals. All right? And so then, after this, Adam is naming the animals, and he begins to realize something. Those I'll call giraffes, whatever that is in Hebrew. Those will be platypi. Those will be pterodactyls, whatever. Um, And as he's looking at those, 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 he begins to realize that there's only one of me. There's bunches of them. There's one of me. What's up with that? Why is there only one? Look, they look so happy. The two monkeys eating, cleaning each other. I don't know. 
Whatever monkeys do to be happy, they look happy doing it. And they look so happy, the dolphins jumping in the sea. Who am I going to jump in the sea with? You know, like there becomes this moment of just what, this is not right. Adam realizes that he's alone. Adam sees that there is nowhere to be found, a helper, a mate, anyone like him. And in his probably slight moment of maybe despair or doubt, I don't know what it would have been pre-fall. I don't know what to call it. But in that moment, God intervenes. Um, God chooses to point out the problem so that Adam sees it. And I would just say this to you, that um, when God points out deficiencies in your life, He already has planned the means to provide for it. When you realize that you are alone in the universe, we just saw um, Susicle last night. Um, But when you realize that you're all alone in the universe, um, God has already provided the means to fill that void. God is not bringing to you a problem or a temptation or anything that he has not already thought of and already planned for his sake and for his glory to fill and meet. And if you look at it, that's exactly what happens. God could have just created two people. Instead, he has Adam. He creates the woman and then Adam sings a praise song. (laughs) He sings praises to God. Like, he's not singing to the woman. He says, this is flesh and my flesh. You wouldn't say that to somebody. Like, I wouldn't say to Melissa, hey, this is is flesh of my flesh. And she's like, what is? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know? He's not singing to the woman. He's singing to God. This praise that God has made him someone for him. God saw the deficiency, planned to fill it, pointed it out to Adam so that Adam would give him glory. I just, I find that comforting. And so one of the reasons for marriage is community. Another reason for marriage is the filling of the earth. And we're going to come back to this, actually. Um, And... I just want to say this, though, that the being fruitful and multiplying, um, when you realize the setting for marriage, that it's a kingdom temple and that people are God's image-bearing priest kings, if they are fruitful and multiply and they work and keep the garden like they're supposed to together, that eventually this temple garden will grow and it will fill the entire earth. And that the earth will be filled with image-bearing king priests. Can you imagine a, a, a world filled with people who, as perfectly as people were created to reflect the image and the glory of God, live in harmony with him and with creation and with each other, and sing every day the praises of God and the earth being his kingdom and his temple where he walks in our midst 
freely? Can you imagine that? It's coming. And it's beautiful. And that's what God intended. And that's one of the purposes for marriage. Is that humanity would fill the earth. God cherishes people. And he loves life. So of course there are a lot more reasons for marriage. But, but I want to hone in on those two. Community. The fact that it's not good to be alone. And that the earth be filled with the glory of God as his earth is filled with his image bearers. And so then, we ought to look at the beauty of marriage. Because marriage is a beautiful thing. And for some of you, you may not feel it right now. Your marriage may not be particularly beautiful right now. But marriage, the institution of marriage, is beautiful. And let's look at why. The first thing we see is that in verse 18, God decides that he will make a helper fit for the man. Um, And then again, we see that, that Adam realizes what he needs is a helper fit for him. All right? Marriage is designed... So that two people who are not the same, but who need each other, will be brought together for the sake of human flourishing. It is safe to say that Adam would not have flourished as a human. He would not have enjoyed creation to the maximum capacity that he in his humanness could have were he not married. Now let me say this really quickly. Marriage is the central and the building block for culture and community, but it's not the only relationship within community. So if God has you right now and you are single and that is where God has you, that is good. You are squarely where you need to be. God loves you. You have been given other avenues for community, but they will not and they cannot look like marriage. God creates marriage so that Adam has a helper suitable for him. And when he creates Eve, Adam realizes it. And he begins to sing, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. And he says she'll be called woman, which literally means from the man, which means Adam isn't really that creative. But in all fairness, the word Adam means from the dirt. So uh, he had precedent given for how to name things. And so... The beauty of marriage is that God gives Adam a helper and that that helper is suitable for him. Look, if you're married, um, well, here's the thing. We, we, we are so worried about this idea of the will of God and, and 
And not that that's a bad thing, but to the point where we've kind of made the will of God this like very particular like bridge from one place to another and so much so that like if you veer too much to the right, you'll fall off of this bridge into this like nebulous, this nexus called outside of the will of God. And so, like, when you're, and, and you're there, like, oh, how do you get back? I don't know. There's nothing to grab onto. I'm outside of the will of God. And so we're constantly, like, and, and sometimes this kind of improper, maybe, understanding of how we ought to live in the context of the will of God allows us to ask some really bad questions. And so some of those questions might be, did I marry the right person? I, I can answer that for you. Um, if you said I do, the answer is yes. Right? Um, single people who really want to get married um, and you're worried about marrying the right person, the moment you marry somebody, that's God's person for you. So, so look, I'm not saying, hey, look for that one person. That's, that's such a ridiculous notion. But when you find someone and you choose to set your course with them, that is the person that God chose for you. That is the helper suitable for you. Suitable. Designed for you. Now let me make two asides. The first one we're going to actually talk about in a little bit more detail, and that's you know, the reality of sin affecting the true, the applicability of the statement that I just made. Sin has ruined God's good design. It's marred it. And so many of us have divorce as something that is a part of our storyline, whether it's a family member or your parents or even you god is working through that and if if you are there god loves you and you are well within his will because he designed it like that and depending on the circumstances you may marry again and that person you marry is who god designed for you and if you don't marry again then know that the communion that you have with other believers and with Christ, though it will never fill in the same way that marriage is meant to, there's hope and beauty in it, and you can trust God through that. And we're going to come back to that really hard in the very next point. So I'm going to move on to the second aside. A helper suitable quite literally can be understood as as one who was uniquely designed and intended for, purposed for you, for you to accomplish the will of God in your life, for you to live according to the design that God has for you, um, which means that when God created man, the helper for marriage that he designed particularly was woman. And I don't want to spend too much time belaboring this point, 
But I do want to say this, that in every creative, and when I say that, I mean God being the order of creation. When you look at the created order, the goal and the reason for marriage is met particularly, specifically, exclusively in the union between man and woman. Man and man, woman and woman cannot meet all the purposes for marriage. Look, if the only purpose for marriage that you cite is love or physical enjoyment, But when you look at the broad scope of what God has given marriage for, the flourishing of human culture, yes, enjoyment, community, and then what we're going to talk about next, the picture, the promise of marriage, it does not work any other way. And that is hard to hear if homosexuality is something that you contend with in your heart and in your life. But here's the truth. That just like those who God has called to be single, simply because you cannot join into biblically and according to God's design a marriage relationship, really any sort of physical or emotion, just because God has said that homosexuality and the practice of it is outside of his plan and design. Does not mean that God does not love you. And does not mean that God, just like with Adam when he said that he was alone, saw a way, created a way to meet Adam, to fill his need, to meet his need. In the same way, if God is revealing this to you, God has presented for you everything you need in Christ Jesus to be complete and to be whole. And whether you are married or single for whatever reason, no matter what your orientation, whatever you, you, you would say about that, God has called us as believers to die to our desires, to die to our flesh, so that we might gain the greater reward. And so for all of you, I would encourage you, if you're single, be single to the glory of God. Abstain to the glory of God. And if you're married, be married to the glory of God. And trade in those momentary pleasures and those momentary sin for eternal good. Let's keep going. Two become one. That's another beautiful thing about marriage. This is edited in. Moses edits in after explaining how God marries Adam and Eve. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The two becoming one is a part of the beauty of marriage. God created it so that it was not just that Adam was cool, but dang it, he could have used the helper. 
You know, Adam was cool, but man, I could really have somebody to help me make sandwich. You know, like it's not that. You know, when, when you talk about it like that, no, listen, and I use that specific joke intentionally because when you talk about it like that, what woman becomes relegated to is just the maid that God saw that Adam needed to keep the garden clean. And you take away the fact that God decided first to tell us that male and female are created in his image. And the fact that even though they're different, they're equal in need and necessity and importance in humanity and in dignity. And so the reality is that Adam is not complete until Eve completes him, which means Adam is not fully human until God gives him his wife and vice versa. And that's a beautiful thing that when two come together, they can become one. And it's Jesus who says when two are joined together, when God joins two together, let no man tear them asunder. That's, I, I'll, you know, for a while I thought that was just kind of some cool Victorian saying that they kind of threw in. That's Jesus, Right? And Jesus allows for a divorce just like God allows for divorce in cases of adultery. But he says, other than that, that two becoming one is so beautiful and points to something so beyond us that no man should tear it asunder. It's beautiful. And when it happens in your marriage, you see it, right? It's definitely, this, this is not like a, I do, I do, we're one, whoa, you know, oh, you know, it's not like that. It's a lifelong battle of dying to yourself so that, in fact, two might become one. And the result of that is in the next statement, I, I love this, and they were, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, look, I know that this makes for great Sunday school pictures, right, like appropriately placed leaves and you know, like trees and things that are just, whatever. Um, Like, look, whether or not they actually didn't have clothes on is not really what the Bible is trying to tell us here. Because when you look at what happens in chapter 3, and I'm just going to touch on it and then let Brad do his thing next week, week after. But they clothe themselves to hide their guilt. So the fact that they're naked and unashamed now is saying they're without guilt. They, they are who they are without worry of judgment, without fear of judgment with one another. That's an amazing thing to know that you can be with someone and you can say something that in front of other people, man, I wish I hadn't said that. I must sound like the biggest idiot in the world. And I, I mean, I say that all the time, right? I, and, but it's nice to, it's, it's a beautiful thing, you know, to be able to be at your worst and not fear of the judgment of someone. And that's what they had. That's something that marriage is supposed to be. That he wants a practical application. Create that environment for your spouse. We're naked and unashamed. Finally, we don't have much time to unpack this. Another home group plug. The promise of marriage. All right? And so, look, there's the picture of, there, there's the picture of marriage. We see where it took place in that kingdom temple, why God did it, um, so that 
humanity would not be, so man would not be alone for the establishment and the flourishing of culture, um, for the filling of the earth with God's image bearers, the beauty of it, that God designed two people perfectly for each other, that, that the two become one and that they're thus naked and unashamed. Um, but here we find ourselves after the fall, and I just want to make a few points about sin and about the promise of marriage. First is that sin creates aloneness. Our sin separates us from God. It separates us from other people. It separates us from ourselves. And that sin-fueled aloneness is met by Christ. Jesus is our husband. That's how the scriptures talk about his relationship to us, the church. Jesus becomes the one who leaves his home, who leaves his father and his mother and goes to the cross, dies, and is coming again to cleave to his bride. Jesus does it perfectly. Just like God took from Adam's side and creates Eve, Jesus on the cross. The imagery of his side being pierced and that from his piercings we are healed, we are made alive. This idea that our husband has his side wounded to buy us as his bride. That's unbelievable. That's marriage. Jesus himself looks at it in, in, his, in Matthew 19, for example. He tells the parable of the kingdom, and it's saying, hey, look, it's like a marriage. It's a wedding that's happening. You better be ready for that marriage. We are united with Christ. Like he gives us his spirit so that we can be one with him, and ultimately we will be one with him when he returns, which means that ultimately we await that final marriage in Revelation 19. So if you wanted to study that later, it's Revelation 19 where we see the marriage supper of the Lamb where God says everything is ready, the bride is ready, let's bring in the bridegroom, let's marry them. And this time what the Lord God through the sacrifice of his son Jesus has brought together, nothing in heaven or hell will ever tear asunder again. You will be united with God. Perfectly. Every tear is wiped away. There's no hunger. There's no thirst. There's no death. There's no loneliness anymore. Because we are in union with God. And so, in the meantime, be preparing yourself for the ultimate marriage. Let's pray.